Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of your wife, of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs of you, of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us as we start. Father, we want to thank you, God, so much for everything that you allowed our brother Stan to do, to see, to become. We thank you, God, for the call on each one of our lives, God, to grow and to expand in our hearts in the scope and the depth and intensity of which we are used by you. That's, that's our prayer, God. We know that there is such a need in this world and we live in so much of the access that we have here. We want to reach out to places of need and bring your fullness, your abundance, your grace, your glory, God, your goodness to those who need it most. We thank you, God, for hearts of compassion. And we thank you, God, for Stan and his obedience to you. And we ask that, God, that you continue to work in our lives in that way to grow us. For we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in First Peter. And let me try and make a link between what Stan shared with us and the text that we have before us today. And let me, let me try and make a link this way. Uh, it's been about um, two weeks since we've been in, in this part of First Peter. But I want to just say that I think as we've been going through First Peter, I think it's been a kind of an interesting way that as I've been tracking my own mind, the way that eternal word of God, which is timeless, has come to land on this people, in this place, in this time. It's made a unique sound, I think, as it resonates off of our lives. If I can change the analogy, there is a unique reaction that drugs have into the biochemistry of every single individual. And as the medicine that is in First Peter has been injected into this body of Christ, it has had a unique reaction among our needs and the way that it heals us. And so let me take, just change the analogy one more time. And so let me beat the drum that I've been beating for these past few weeks that we've been going through First Peter. And let me see if you've been internalizing the rhythm. The rhythm that we've been hearing from the book of First Peter is that our destination shapes our destiny, and our destiny shapes our identity. 
Another way to say that is where we are going shapes who we are becoming. So if you mark your place where this is the goal, this is where I'm going to end up, this is the kind of place that I am striving for, it shapes the kind of person daily you're becoming as you walk closer to that place. And so it is very important that as we set out, that Peter directs our attention to where we are headed, namely the kingdom of God in heaven. Heaven is not what I think many people think that it is. Because I think many people think that in their conception of heaven that's kind of loose in our world and our culture and even in our churches, is that heaven is whatever you want it to be. So if what you love the most and brings you the most joy or puppies dressed in human clothes. Heaven will just be the place where there are all these puppies when dressed in human clothes and no cats. If heaven for you is tennis, heaven will be just filled with tennis cords galore. If heaven for you is music, it will be where there will be just symphonies blaring and, and every unique brand of music for you to enjoy. But that's what heaven is about. Heaven is what you think heaven is for you. And I want to just say, who said Whoever said that heaven is whatever you define it to be? Heaven, biblically, is the kingdom of God, which means that there is a king. And that king designs as an architect the way the corridors and the streets of heaven are created. And heaven is not, let me say emphatically, to disperse any illusions that anybody may have come here with. Heaven is not sitting on a beach with an endless supply of sunshine and free mojitos, saying, isn't this the life? Heaven is going to be a place where there is endless excitement, adventure, growth, and change. Heaven is not going to be an implosion of, let me just rest here. If you are thinking, if you were to describe heaven as a place of endless adventure, new excitements constantly, that to me sounds exhausting. I need to rest. I want to say to you in heaven, you won't need to rest. What are you going to rest from in heaven? What stress and labor and toil of the brow and the sweat that you have here on earth, none of that's going to get carried with you into heaven. You're not going to need to rest. You know when you go on vacation with your kids, you just want to lie on the beach, but not your kids. Your kids are saying, Mom, Dad, what's wrong with you? We're on vacation. And you're like, yeah, that's right. I'm on vacation, which means I get to just sit and do nothing. I get to just sleep. And they're like, that's not vacation, Ma. Dad, vacation is when we go out and play and, and play on the shores. And then it, like, I would see something we've never done before. If you wanted to sit and watch TV, we could have done that at home. There are so many new things to see. We've never been here before. Heaven will be an eternal turning of a corner of, I never knew this existed. What is this? Where did that smell come from? That sound, what is, what is that? And the air charged with the particles of the glory and the beauty and the infinitude of the grace and the mercies of God in Christ Jesus everywhere. Heaven is an expanding place, which is the Bible's way of saying that the goal of much of America of comfort in the middle class, middle age variety is not the goal in heaven and is therefore not our goal now. And so I wanted to apprise you of, of a sin which you might not have ever known is a sin. I think I stand on some pretty firm biblical ground when I say 
I draw this out from the scriptures. There is a sin of being boring. Yes, of being boring. Because there was a brother I was speaking with just a little bit long ago, and I, I, I was so attracted. You know what I mean? I was so attracted to this brother. It's just something about Jim. And then I figured out quickly why it was. See, even as we're talking, in every f- few moments, there is happiness and sadness. Just like there's things that make him happy. The next moment we're talking about something sad, and, and he just he knows how to be happy and sad. He does not spend a lot of time in the bland and neutrality of not going to hope for too much and not going to be disappointed too much. Let, not going to open my heart in that way. This guy knew how to be happy and sad. And whatever the call of God is, it is a call to live. And so, if you are a boring person, I'm not saying, i just saying, if you by your own assessment, I think I'm a boring person. The only way that you could possibly get that way is by habitually cultivating a life in which your life song is no Lord, no Lord, no, no Lord, no way. No, Lord, no, Lord, no, no, Lord, no way. And the cure for that state of mind is in Proverbs, where it says in, I think, chapter 17, 46, make your vows to the Lord and then fulfill them. Make your vows to something which God is calling you to do. Open up your mind and heart and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. Amen. The twin of the sin of being boring is being bored, which some of you may be right now. Nothing excites you, and you are so inured with all of life. Everything is the same every day in every way to which the proper biblical reaction is, I don't want that in my life. I don't want there to be a static Part of life, whatever life is to be, it is not to be static. I want to stir it up. I want to be not just have, I don't want to have the security. I don't want to trade faithful living in God for security because where there is no risk, there is no faith. And so change is an important part of the normative Christian life. And so this brings us to where I say, the faithful life of taking up the cross and following Christ Jesus on the Calvary Road marks you for majesty and mercy, but not for security and safety. And so as we enter into this part where we're talking about husbands and wives, let me say this emphatically. If there is also loose in the world a thinking that from the world religions, that to go through trial and suffering and to go through pain means that somehow you have incurred the displeasure of the gods. That if you are suffering, there are many religions that will tell you it's because God has cursed you. You've done something wrong and God is punishing you. Against that way of thinking, the scripture says insistently that if you go through trial and suffering and difficulty, it is not because you have God's displeasure. The scriptures say that every single person that God calls as son and daughter, he will discipline and will allow a certain degree of pain to enter your life for your good. For your good. And so adversity and struggle and pain, admonished by Peter, is that we ought not to see it as something that is strange. We'll get there in the end of the arc of this book in chapter 4. 
pain is not to be seen as something strange. And the word that he uses in this book is the word xenos, where we get the word xenophobia. You guys know what xenophobia is? Xenophobia is the fear of foreigners. It's the fear of somebody who's a stranger. And you have a phobic, an allergic reaction to this thing that's strange and foreign. And Peter's saying, don't let pain be that way. Not for you. Let pain not be a xenos, a stranger. Let pain be the friend that comes into your life that helps you to do the things which God is calling you to do. So I ask you honestly, brothers and sisters, this afternoon, how will you possibly leave the comfort of Egypt and cross through the wildernesses that always comes with leaving the comforts of your, what you know, what's comfortable to you, and going to a promised land that is so much better than you, anything you could have ever dreamed up? How will you ever go there unless there is a force that is put upon your life? Pain is a pressure. No one likes pressure. But pain is a pressure on your life. It is a force upon you. And pain is a power. And if you've never thought of pain in this way, the Bible realigns your mind to think. Pain, however difficult, however much we may not like its entrance to begin with, pain is a power to grow pain is the pressure that pushes out the boundaries of a small heart and of a small faith and pushes it and causes it to expand pain is a power to grow and all of us need that to grow when we look into this book in 1st Peter there is a verse here which arrives at the very beginning part in chapter 1 where in one six, and I'm going to direct you there before briefly before we go to the chapter three, where we're going to spend just a little bit more time. And in chapter one, verse six, God is saying to us, "In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come so that your faith of greater worth mark that these have come, these trials, this grief, this suffering, this pain." has come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Pain has not entered your life at random. Adversity and struggle has not come into you because it just something happened or you made a mistake. Pain is a divinely ordered and ordained work of God in your life to whisper to you or sometimes to shout at you and sometimes to insist upon you, it is time again to grow. When I feel physical pain, like when I'm in a dentist chair and that nerve is hit before the Novocaine starts to work in, I don't, I'm not a doctor, so I, you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, but all kinds of chemicals start to shoot into my body. I believe it's adrenaline, am I, am I right? Like, the instinctive reaction that my body physiologically generates in response to pain is, we got to do something about this. And pain enters into your soul, into your spirit, in that same catalytic way to say, let's do something. Let's not sit in the inertia of where we've been. Let's move forward. We can't stay where we are. We've got to go forward. And when we read that at the beginning of First Peter, 
this letter comes to the congregations which, which Peter writes to. And it would have been sent via a messenger, a trusted messenger by Peter, who God speaks to Peter. Peter puts it in the hands of this messenger, and the messenger is to stand before the church and to read this from beginning to end in one sitting. In other words, there was not total literacy in the church at that time. Not, we, all, we are literate culture, so we all have our Bibles, and we are tracking along, which is our benefit that we have. But in the first community that Peter was writing to, they did not each have their Bible. They could not say, okay, here's a letter from Peter. Let's go Xerox it and everybody hand out copies. Somebody would have read it, which means that Peter intended for every part that follows to be read in light of everything that came before. Which, when I put this together, means very simply that when we are now going to get to and spend just a brief time on the teaching about marriage, what he wrote earlier that says that there is a pain that enters into your life, no matter how difficult, for your good, because God loves you and wants you to grow and wants more for you than comfort. He means for you to apply that to every part of your life, including your marriage, which is a radically different picture than I think the gauzy, defocused, overly sacred pictures that sometimes we get of marriage in this world. I have recently come in contact with a book that, uh, that Piper wrote about marriage. And he, do you guys know this book? Have you seen it on the, on the website at least? I don't know if we have it in our, in our, in our uh, book carousel. The book titled, you know, most of the books... I'm sorry, I, I, I just, let me just speak candidly. Most of the books on marriage have on their cover two very attractive, usually, smiling people that are, look like they've just been on the beach sipping mojitos. And they're just like, oh, it's marriage, wonderful. You know? Piper, on the book of his book on marriage, has a cross. And he titles it, This Momentary Marriage. Do you know where that word momentary comes from? I, I don't even know this. I mean, I've read certain parts of the book, but not others. But I know this is where exactly what, where that word is supposed to echo among a biblically literate people. The word comes from 2 Corinthians 4.17, which says that I do, that these light and momentary afflictions are working in us an eternal weight of glory that is not to be compared. There is a light momentary affliction, no matter how unbearable it may seem in a moment that is working in eternal glory, that is working, that is not just something to overstep, it is by the means of the pain which God is creating and stirring your life for change and growth that will be one of the most beautiful things displayed when you get to heaven, when Jesus Christ is revealed. To say that I've endured this and my faith has grown and my faith that was so filled with corruptions and impurities and weaknesses was purified in this fire of suffering. And now it is, shines beautifully because of the pain in which I went through and endured faithfully. And that's what he puts at the beginning of the title when he wants to write about marriage. The foreword of this book by John Piper is by Noel Piper. I think that's bold because... It's easy to dedicate a book, dedicate a book about marriage to your wife. Who everybody does that. Who does not write a book about marriage and say, 
and to my loving wife who has always been there, who showed me what this book is all really about. Who has not written that? Every, every person is going to write that. How many people would say then, give the book in its manuscript form to their wife and say, you want to write the forward? The, the first thing that people read, the first impression of me, and then they're going to read the rest of the book? Because you're handing over the power for this woman to say, everything you're about to read is complete false. This is, this is a sh- Don't believe a word of this man about when it comes to marriage. How do you approach a wife when you're going to do this? She's going to write the forward. Yeah, honey, are you, are you in a good mood today? Why? No reason. No, no, no reason. No. <laughs> I'll, I'll get you when you're not, have the laundry and the kids and, and the stress of work on you right now. So she writes this in the beginning of her foreword to this book called A Momentary Marriage, Married and Singles. Yeah. She writes something to the effect, I'm just, just, I just glanced at it, something to this effect. There are marriages that where the husband and wife agree on everything, minister in ways that they both agree upon and raise their kids upon the ways they agree upon and, and have that kind of sailing, uh, just wonderful, just rapturous, uh, the ones that you want to put in the cover of these books kind of marriage and she the first thing out of the gate in this book is and our marriage is not like that so if these marriages exist ours is not like that so in the five three or four pages that she has in the forward she includes a poem to her husband this is the poem that was written on the day of their 25th wedding anniversary And it's entitled Going for the Gold by Noel Piper. What a way to prepare for our party. Was it you who hurt me or I you? But our smiles were constrained to seem hearty, a veneer we were all too used to. May the next 25 be as great as the first, they said with their hugs and smiles. While I tried to dream up an alias I'd adopt after bolting for miles. (laughs) But... I knew I would stay. How could I flee the one who knew me yet loved me still? Then Beryl, whose years with Arnold were 60, matter-of-factly thawed my heart's chill. The years that are coming will be the best. The first 25 were the hardest. Happy sad, don't you think? Happy sad. But not boring. No. That's never been the goal for marriage. And it is at this point where every husband and wife ought to hold their hands and say, we don't want to stay where we are in this wilderness. We've left the honeymoon, the comforts of the promised land, and now we are in this desert where it's hard and we are both scrapping for water. And you and me together will get there. We'll get there. It may take years, but we will make it together. That is marriage. And so there is nobody whom Piper quotes more in this book. And I know this even through a quick glance because every chapter almost begins with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who is most famous for saying, thus it begins, the cross is not a terrible end. The cross is not a terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. But the cross meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that ought to be placarded over every single marriage. I don't know who married you. Some of you I do. But I don't know if the preacher said, this is an invitation to come and die. But it is. 
Marriage is not the invitation to comfort and security. Marriage is that wild romance. It is. It has come and it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. If you stay with it and allow the bleeding to come as well as the blessing, there will be a promised land that you reach that will be far greater and more thrilling than anything you could have anticipated when you made this covenant in the beginning. And I say again, how will you ever live to Christ unless you answer his call to die? And there is a new world, a new land, a new kingdom that is in this text that we're going to read very quickly in First Peter 3 that is so completely different than the way of this world that entering into it feels like a death. The world sees this section from 1 through 7 in chapter 3 of 1 Peter and says, Are you nuts? What planet are you living on? What age are you living in? Headship? Didn't that go out with the dark ages? Male? What does that even mean, headship? That's Christian terminology. That's very simple. It means that God has so ordained that men would be the head of the household. And that rings in the ears of every single unbeliever as... <laughs> you are living in a different world than I am. And then comes the harder part. Do you understand when the title the NIV gave to the previous section is Submission to Masters, and then it exactly did not call this section Submission to Husbands. It said Wives and Husbands. That's not a theologically driven, I don't think, move. I think it is because the NIVs in their desire, uh, NIV councils in their desire to reach all people would find that the word submission would be so intolerable to unbelievers that they did not want to put that there. But you cannot get away from it because the first beginning part says wives in this same way and as it says just before, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. So there is this headship submission in the kingdom of God which you enter into when you enter into a Christian marriage. And it is so different and it goes against every single common sense thing in the unbelieving world that headship and submission even into your ears as believers in this church from the word of God may still unsettle you thinking, I don't like this headship submission business. Why must there be headship and submission? And so let me talk about that as just a thing, something to put over the specific commands of these verses. And I'll just try and make a bridge from my own experience watching reality TV shows. So I got into this thing. I'm not saying I'm proud of myself for it, but I've gotten hooked on this America's Got Talent X Factor business. And so I'm watching it. Any of you who have seen one of these episodes, especially the the, the finals round, you guys will know what I'm talking about. Oh, gosh, everyone's hopes and dreams are on this. Everybody wants this so mad. They have their pre-interviews and everyone's saying, you know, like, you know, what, what, you know, what does this mean to you if you win this, right? If you, be, if, you win, if, you, if you win this at the end, you're the last person and you've made it. What does this mean to you? And they're all starting to break down and weep and say, oh, this is my dream. This is everything I've hoped for. And so then you see, like, you know, like they announce it. And so, like, you know, America's voted and all that. Millions of people called in and it's telephone company. Everybody's made money and all that. And then so then there's, like, these, like, these finalists. And seven, there's, like, seven or eight of them. And as they're announcing the results, who gets to stay and who, gets, who has to go and has their dream crushed, 
they're all, they're, they're trembling. Everyone's just thinking like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Why do we do this? I look at this and I think, oh, can't they just all win? Why, why, do we, why do we have to do this? Why does there have to be one winner? And there has to be just one winner. Why do, why do we do this? We constantly do this. I mean, like ever since high school, it has, why does there have to be a homecoming king and queen? But there are. There, there always is this thing where we always seem to have to kind of narrow down and to choose. Why must we do this and why do we force ourselves to, to have this and set up this hierarchy of somebody win and then there's these runners up and, and we make this hierarchy. Why do we do this? And there is a reason why we do this and I'm, let me forego the whole political reasoning behind all of this. I'm going to cut to the quick. There is a good. In a fallen order, there is a bad in that, but there is also a good. There is a reason why hierarchy is set up. There is a, a real good reason why hierarchy exists. And hierarchy exists in the kingdom of God. Hierarchy, meaning headship, submission, those kinds of things, that kind of ordering, is a good. And let me explain it to you by via the negative. And here's the negative. The opposite of hierarchy is anarchy. And so, a radical equality produces anarchy, where no one is willing to submit to anybody else, and everyone, in their radical equality, everyone does their own thing. And there is completely a leveling where nobody is the first, nobody is the runner-up, everyone is completely level, and everybody is in their isolated islands. That's anarchy. I was talking to Christine and Jimmy just a little while back. Christine spoke at our women's conference some years back. And they were telling me about an anarchist conference in New York City where thousands of anarchists were coming to congregate together. And I was thinking, is that not an oxymoron? How do anarchists lead their meetings? The first person says, well, the agenda for today is, sit down! Who are you? You think you're better than me? No, I'm going to speak now. All right, no, 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 shut up. I'm going to speak now. And it's just like, however, there's a thousand different rulers there. There is no hierarchy and there is madness. Radical equality makes community impossible. And so when we talked about a Sabbath rest some weeks back, we were talking of divine ordering where God says, there is surely as there is, there is a king. And there is a kingdom where he reigns and rules. And there is a hierarchy for the good, for the benefit, for the joy, for the peace of the peoples. That is the way kingdom hierarchy works. It's a good thing. Headship and submission are not bad, horrible, power abusive things. It's power for good, power and exercise of love in the kingdom of God. And we enter into this kind of reality, this foreign world to us, which we need to live in. We enter there in Christian teachers who help us, like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. The, toward the end of one, the Return of the King had seven or eight endings, as far as I could track in that movie. And one of them, it had the hobbits on that elevated, on that, you know, that place, and everyone's, you know, bowing down to the hobbits, and they're so humble. And then it had the whole Return of the King, it means that there was anarchy for the greatest benefit and the curse. And now there is a shalom, there's a peace, because the king has returned. And he's taken his rightful place. So Aragon and Arwen are there. And all the people in the kingdom bow down. And you could hear the world would grab that and they would spoof that. Would they not? 
I can so easily see some unbeliever spoof that. And so that as everyone is bowing down to Aragon and Arwen, the rightful king and queen of the land, as they're bowing down, they're looking at each other thinking, that should be me up there. This rots. Oh gosh, who does he think he is? I hate bowing down. I hate to submit. Why do I have to submit? Or to enter into the world of Lewis and Tolkien as they are informed by God's kingdom values and kingdom principles. When they bow down, there is a joy to submission. There is a joy that says, there is an order here. We are not a thousand people in a thousand different directions, with a thousand different principles and a thousand different ideas. We are all joined together in a unified way. We are submitting. As long as there persists a power struggle in your marriage, there will be a lack of peace in the home. And God meant that there should be in the home over every single Christian marriage. He's breathing out shalom. May the peace of Christ be over this family. May there be a divine headship and submission that occurs. And for those of you who may look back at me and say, that's easy for you to say. In this thing that God set up, you get to be on top, right? You get to be, you're the one that has to be submitted to. You're a male, so it's easy for you to say. Wrong! Not so. Submission is a good and a joy. And it's not for me, it's not, I'm not saying this as somebody who's kind of thought, okay, yeah, I love it when people submit to me. I'm saying this as somebody as I love to submit. If you ask me, who do I submit to? I am part of a family structure. I'm not all by myself either. I have a family structure in which I am not the head. And to the degree that I am part of my family of origin, my father is the head of that household. And you know, my parents, my folks drove out from New Jersey to to Chicago for my graduation. And then they took me and, and a whole bunch of my friends out to dinner. And as they took us out to dinner, the conversation started kind of going around all different areas and all that. And there's my mom and dad. You know, we were all around the table and there's my mom and dad. And they started getting to ask my parents, like none, like none of us are married. We're all single. We're all graduating college. And so they get to asking my mom and dad about, about their marriage. <laughs> and so we're in Chicago. We're fairly progressive, fairly liberal people. And so, we, so they're asking, so, so who, wears the, you know, who wears the pants in, in, in your family? You know, like they're saying this to my mom and dad. And my mom just says, matter of fact, oh, no, you know, in our household, dad is king. And everybody just stops and did she just say did she just say what we think we just we just heard? Everybody stopped in their tracks. Except for me and my mom were saying, and we love it. We love it. And my dad, who I know heard, was pretending to be engrossed in a conversation with one of my friends. <laughs> there is a joy and a peace that's been in our household that which we did not always have. I entered into this realm not until I was 17. I fought my dad until I became a Christian. When I was 17, I came to Christ. I would always say, I don't want to listen to you. You don't know what you're talking about. I have my own life, my own ideas. I'm going to live my own way. You're not going to tell me what to do. I know better than you now. And you know, why do you get to lay down the law for our family? And you, what, what you say goes, why is that? I was 17, I met Christ. I met the Christ. Everything changed, and it was too early for anybody to teach me what that meant about honor. I had not even come to the command about honoring your parents. I mean, maybe I heard that someplace. I, it meant nothing to me. No one said, now this means that you must honor and submit 
to your mom and dad. But when I came home from that retreat, the first thing, my first interactions with my father were absolutely different. And I, this is, I'll just tell you, I got the father I always needed, and he got the son he always wanted. It was a flash of insight that Christ came into my life, and then the first time I looked at my father, I thought, holy cow, what have I been doing? When you act, it is for my good. When you've said things that I did not want to obey, it was always because you loved me and cared about me and wanted my good. If it wasn't for my good, if I had to sacrifice something, it was for the good of our whole family. I listened to you. I'm done with rebelling against you. I'm done fighting you. I want to rest in the peace of saying, you're my dad. You're the head. That has not changed in decades. I do all that I can, not perfectly. (laughs) I do all that I can to support his headship of our family. And I love that submission. When my dad takes his place as the head of our household, I do not feel weaker. I do not feel more imposed upon. I feel stronger. There is a divine biblical order that is good in headship and submission. And so let me give a few words that are from this text to the wives. And then I'll give a closing word to the husband, exactly as the way that it is here. And let me just say this. The reason why that if you look in all of your Bibles, it has a verses 1 through 6 for wives and a verse 1, measly verse you may say to the husbands, is because when it says here in verse 7, husbands in the same way, we'll get to this in just a few minutes, I promise. Husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner. You know, people get so up in arms about what that means. You read Proverbs 31, it does not mean a weak woman. It does not mean a weak woman. God rejoices in the strength, in the boldness, the courage, the confidence of a strong woman in Christ. But what is the weaker partner? All it means is that in the relationship between your husbands and wives, it means that you can hurt your wife more easily than she can hurt you. And if women, as I've heard it say many times, if women can endure more pain, it's because they've had to. That's just the way it's been. That's what this text means when it says, be considerate of your weaker partner. So, to give six verses to women and one verse to men is not to say, here's all these things women you've got to do and men, just you just got to do this. God in his love is saying, I know you need more ministry. So let me minister to you. Let me minister to you in this difficulty and this struggle which is going to be and is good but is difficult at the same time and he says wives be submissive to your husband so that if any of them do not believe the word they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives and so let me just say this real quick the angle that we are taking into this is going to be a little the, the entrance that we're going to make into this text is going to be a little bit in an angle because it is has specifically in mind unbelieving husbands. But for most of us here, that's just not the case. And so I want this to be applicable to you. So we're not going to talk about the, about we're not going to apply this to wives who are dealing with unbelieving husbands. We're going to apply this to wives who have to deal with husbands who sometimes act like they're unbelieving husbands. You know what I mean? And so it says to these husbands. Wives, be the same way, in the same way, be submissive to your husband, so that if any of them do not believe the word, 
they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as braided hair and a wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. And we don't have time to get into this. But this does not mean let yourselves go. <laughs> Husbands, you can thank me later. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who observed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Let me say this. There's so much to say, but I'm just going to cut some brief things here. There is a good, proper way in which to encourage headship and spiritual leadership from your husbands. And there is a way that is exactly counterproductive. And the counterproductive way is what this scripture admonishes against. In other words, this scripture admonishes you, women and wives, to not demand from your husbands spiritual leadership and headship. Do you understand why, do you understand why and, and the way that this text is operating? It says, win them by the beauty of your behavior and reverence to God in Christ. Don't demand it. Because when you demand spiritual headship, when you demand leadership from your husband, what it does is it places him in the position of following your leadership. And the very thing that you are pleading for is being destroyed as you whittle him down and break him down, saying, you're not doing this, you're not doing this, and you've got to do this. The alternative way that this scripture is admonishing is inspire them to take headship. Don't, if they are not taking spiritual headship at the times where they are not taking spiritual headship, don't fill that void and grab it away from them. Let there be a divine space opened up that lets them know, I need you to, I want you to take spiritual headship. I'm leaving this space open for you. And your way of moving them toward that is not demanding, but what this text is talking about is to inspire them to it. Demanding is comfortable, it's easy. Inspiring them to do so is costly and difficult. I'm going to just put an illustration in your minds which may not be helpful to any of you, but to me it's helpful. Bogart in the movie Casablanca, you know, the great, you know, the great love story of our, of our time. Bogart was, was asked by, in an interview, how'd you do it? How did you, how did you adore Ingrid Bergman's character so much? How, we could, the, the, the love radiated off the screen, the celluloid in, into us and moved us so deeply. How did you do that? How did you pull that bit of acting off? Bogart said, you got to be kidding me. When you have Ingrid Bergman looking at you the way that she looked at me, I could not but care and love and want to protect and give there's a way that you can look at your husbands that say, I want you to exercise spiritual leadership. I receive it from you. I want this. This is good. Do you see how good it can be if you take the spiritual ownership and headship of the home? And it might be as simple a thing, and I'm getting really practical here, as when you come to a crossroads of a difficult decision or a non-difficult decision. For wives, for you to say to your husbands, what do you think God wants us to do here? And instead of just jumping to like, let's do this, why do you think like that? No, that's not the way I think. But you may want to pause for a moment and just say, what do you think God wants us to do here? 
And if your husband has been drifting from the Lord, he may say this, this is bad, but he may come at you or this with a certain attitude of, well, what are you asking me for? You know the Bible better than I do. I mean, you know, you, you, you're more spiritual than I am. And that may be for a little while. But eventually, there will be this joyous moving forward. Is, oh, I'm not sure, but I think God wants us to do this. I, I think God wants us to do this. Not me or, or this is my agenda. I think God wants us to do this. You've made a space for his spiritual leadership to be welcome in you and your family. How do you do this and how do you not be demanding this, but how do you invite it and inspire it? And there is something in this text that is so loaded, that is so important. So let me ask you again, women, to the degree that I can enter into the psychology of a woman. This is me taking a step, and you can saw it off in front of me. That's your right, because I don't know you, your mind from the inside out. But this is my question to you all, sisters. When are you the most... <laughs> sorry, I'm going to dial it down a few notches. When, when, <laughs> when are you the most demanding of your husbands? When are you the most exasperated? When are you the most unsupportive? I think if I were to answer that question, I'd say it's when you are most afraid. When you're most afraid. Where? I don't know where this is going. I can't do this by myself. Why do you leave me constantly to take care of the kids and and to discipline? I can't. Where is this going? I'm afraid for us. And so I'm going to just, I have to just grab on. I'm going to and then when you start doing that grabbing, the husband immediately feels suffocated and he starts to close up and immediately feels attacked. How do you not do this? You do this by not giving away, not giving way to fear. There's a choice you have. And you are to follow the example of the strong, courageous, faithful women of old. And this is what it says. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. These women did not clutch at their husbands in a demanding way because their husbands were not their God. And there was a superior submission which they said, the person who is taking care of our household and my life, the person who is in charge, supreme, is God and my hope is planted in Him and nothing less And it is in that solidity, in that confidence of character, that there comes a gentle and quiet spirit, the scripture says. So you cannot, you can, you can fake a gentle and quiet spirit, but it will not come authentically and genuinely without a hope in God. I I remember again when I was 17, when 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 I became a Christian and I entered for the first time into Christian fellowship. And let me just say this, and honestly, I started meeting women in my inner varsity Christian fellowship freshman year like women I've never met before. Because most of the women that I had known that were not Christian unbelievers were put their hope in their looks, put their hope in all the things that just in the world which were radically shifting. And to put your hope in your physical appearance is a losing battle. It's only going to go downhill from here. There's nothing you can do about it. And some of the women who have so preserved themselves with Botox and surgery, they do not look, wow, she looks good. They look freakish. Because 
It's and so, women knowing this. My hope, my confidence, my peace, my ability to be gentle and quiet. In other words, serene is bound up in how attractive I can look to people around me. Whoa, that's ground. That's like sand shifting underneath your feet. I started meeting women at 17. These were other fellows, 17, 18, 19-year-old women who I'd say like, so when did you, be, when did you become a Christian? And <laughs> there wasn't a pickup line. Just, you know, it was honest, like, brother, sister, when did you become a Christian? And they would say, it's been about five years now since the name of Jesus has been sweet to my lips. Whoa, you are more confident than any woman I've, I've ever met. It may me a little bit, actually. But not really. Because it's not aggressive, abrasive. There's this gentle and quiet spirit that says, I am locked in with God. And when I move into a room, my confidence is not how many heads I can turn in my direction by the shortness of my skirt or the beauty of my face. I intentionally scrub that alpha me. When I walk into a room, my confidence is that Jesus is with me always and loves me and knows me and will care for me always. To put your hope in the Lord, to put your hope in God, is to be able to approach your husband in a non-demanding, non-ultimatum-giving way and say, you better do this or else. But to approach them in a gentleness, quietness, which I promise you will be the single most effective, attractive means by which to allow your husband to become the man that you've always desired him to be. So now the last closing word to husbands. Yes, I know that the husbands here are thinking, Good, because I only get one verse. It's just, you know, one to six, and then I just get verse seven. And when I look at that verse seven, shoot, that looks pretty easy to me. Be considerate. I think I can do that. You can't. This is where, again, please forgive me. Let me say this. I will, I will say this each single time. I will not forget to say this. I, I hope. I love the NIV. I really, really love the NIV. But you know the big deal that I made three weeks back when I said that it's not, in, in the earlier part, it's not, uh, what is it there? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. This is in verse 13, to every authority instituted among men. And then in verse 18, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to, for it is commendable. Do you remember the big deal that I made there? Sorry that took so long, but do you mean the big deal that I made that it's not commendable? The word is charis, meaning it's going to take a grace. Husbands, in this verse 7, please reread, please change the way you read it from this moment on. The NIV translated that word, which is gnosis, and translated it considerate because it was trying to improve upon the NASB, which didn't do much better. The NASB translated that verse of husbands be considerate or live with your wives in a considerate way. They translated it more literally and they said, the NASB says, and NASB, I think the NRSB, the ESV goes that way as well, and says husbands live with your wives according or with understanding. That's exactly the way. They say with understanding. And the NIV translator thought, what the heck does that mean? Live with your wives with understanding or in an understanding way. What does that mean? Does not not mean be considerate. Let's make it easy for people to understand what that verse means. Be considerate to your wives. You know what that means. So, 
husbands throughout the church age have read that verse thinking that, okay, well, I got that. I got it, Jesus. I know how to do this. Hold the door open for my wife. Pull out her chair. You know, honey, can I help you with the dishes? Be considerate. Be thoughtful. Katagenosis, according to knowledge. Let me give you the KJV, the old King James, which is the most literal of all. It's absolutely literal. And let me see if you pick up what that verse means from the lips of Peter, speaking the words of God. Live with your wives according to knowledge. It would not be wrong to say, live with your wives according to the knowledge. What do you think that means? The word gnosis, Peter uses very infrequently. He uses it again in Second Peter when he says, and now grow, please grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The knowledge Get the knowledge. Grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is no other hope for you. There is no other power. Live with your lives as those who know Jesus Christ. Do not act like unbelieving husbands. Never take someone who does not know Christ, does not have the knowledge of Jesus and His mercy and His love and His grace and His hope and His power. Never take someone who does not have that as your example of what a husband is to be like. When you look at your wife, be cognizant that Jesus is there and you are to act toward her as Jesus acts towards the bride, the church. Husbands, this is no easy thing. And this is what Bonhoeffer also said. Bonhoeffer said that Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness. And so you have to constantly remind yourselves to do this, to treat them, your wives in an, as one who knows Jesus, as one who knows Christ. Peter had the knowledge of Jesus, but not always. And when Peter met Christ, it completely radically changed his life. And he, Peter is the first person, as he writes this, the first person to know, God loved me, this person, who could not stand up for him in front of a little girl, I caved and I broke. And this Jesus died for me and loved me and cleansed me of my sin. He forgave me and then this Jesus resurrected and he took all my hopes and my power and he resurrected them. I know him. Now when I cast my gaze upon every single person, that must inform the way that I treat every single person. But now Peter makes a unique application for husbands to wives. Don't let it be said of you, by your wife, I can't tell the difference between him and an unbelieving husband. I, I, I don't, I mean, let your wife say, I can joyfully submit to my, the authority of my husband. I gotta use that word. Because he submits the authority of Jesus. This Jesus who cares for us so much. This man is imperfectly but he's doing his best to follow that lead so I can follow him. And so the last word I will give to the husbands because I think that is the way the Lord would want it. And so for in this ministry, let me just close with this. And let me just say this as far as illustration wise. I don't have one. I, I, I thought, you know, how do I, you know, I want, I want to give a really powerful illustration at the end and have you guys take that home. But I, I, this is my admission to you from the first Peter. Make your own illustration. 
Go home and make your own illustration. Find a way to flesh this out. But I want to give this to husbands as instruction in the ways that you are to treat and live with your husbands in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's the prayer of St. Francis. I've quoted it here more than once. But I would like to give this to every single husband. And use, would you use this prayer of St. Francis in the way that you look to your wives? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. You understand what I'm saying? When she's injured, let me find a way that there would be grace and forgiveness. When she's in doubt, let me find a way to build her faith. Where there is despair, let me be her hope. Me in Christ Jesus. When there is her darkness, let me be her light. When there is her sadness, let me be her joy. Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled by her as to console her. Not so much to be understood by her as to understand her. Not so much to be loved by her as to love her. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Resurrected life comes only after crucifixion. And if some of you are going through that, marriage in the pain is a gift. It is a means by which there is the dying of the old self and the resurrection and the rising of the new. Marriage, especially a painful one, can be the greatest aid. This is what God means for it to be. To your growing in the graces of Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me as we close? like to ask both husbands and wives to examine in light of 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 the state of your marriage in Jesus, in Christ. Wives, the state of your submission. Men, the state of your headship. And to both, the state of your love, your obedience, your faith, your hope and joy. You've been bound together in such a way so that your hope and joy and your prayers, your knowledge of God is bound up in the other. But what I think I'm trying to get so, across to you so hard is that not just in the joyous moments, but the very difficulties are God's means of increasing the grace and the faith. They are God's call to grow. Because there's a living person in front of you saying, would you grow, please? I need more from you. And there's somebody also standing in front of me saying, and I want to be more for you. It's not hard, is it, to repent before your husband or wife and say, I'm sorry. I want to be so much more for you in Christ. And I don't got it. Let us go together to the one who does. He'll lead us. He'll bind us. He'll grow us. He'll take us where to where we need to be.
Husbands, would you take the wives of your hands as I close this in prayer and say, we pray, Father, over every single marriage here and say that there would be an invasion, an infiltration of your Holy Spirit in every single marriage here. Jesus, as the world looks on, may they see the difference 